Linda said to me, she pulled me aside from them and said a sentence, which I, I think is one of the most amazing sentences I've ever heard. She goes, David, do you think I know about marriage? And I thought, well, yeah, I can tell you have a great marriage with Paul. She goes, marry that girl right away. And I'd only gone out for a few weeks, but we did get engaged within like four months of that. And wow. and she was part of the reason. Jumpsters from Liverpool, England. The significance is that the Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. Hello, I'm Jack, and you're listening to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast, an interview show about the Beatles' influence in the past, present, and future across the universe and across generations. David Wilde is a Peabody and Emmy-winning television writer and producer, longtime Rolling Stone writer and editor, New York Times best-selling author, and prominent pop culture commentator. Wilde is a college scholar graduate of Cornell University who then worked at Esquire and Rolling Stone where he both wrote and served as music editor. Since the year 2000, Wilde has been writing and producing well over a hundred high-profile TV specials, including all of the Grammy Awards since 2001, working with hosts from Jon Stewart to Queen Latifah to Trevor Noah, and all of the CMA Awards since 2002, including 12 years with hosts Carrie Underwood and Brad Paisley. Wilde has written numerous best-selling books, both as an author, including two official books for the cast of Friends, as well as being a co-author for artists from Ringo Starr to Brad Paisley, and penning liner notes for artists including The Rolling Stones, LL Cool J, Fleetwood Mac, and Frank Sinatra. Wilde has received numerous Emmy nominations and was most recently nominated just last year in 2021 as producer for the Grammy Awards and won a Daytime Emmy last year as a writer for the Independent Film Spirit Awards. David has also worked one-on-one with both Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney, and he has extremely amazing and interesting stories about his connections with both of them. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's an honor to be able to speak with you. It's an honor to be able to speak. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm good. I'm coming out of, uh, like, the craziest few months of in a long time because I... I've been doing the Grammys as a writer producer for 21, this is my 21st year. And then right out of that, three days later, we did a Paul Simon Grammy tribute. Uh, and right out of that, I'm launching this podcast and recording those. And right before that, I was finishing up a book uh, with two books, actually, but the second of two books with Ringo done during the pandemic. So it's been a crazy, busy few months. And I find after you stop like with TV shows and events, because I came out of journalism, but now that I'm a, in the TV world, at the end of these shows, you often feel worse once you stop. Like you realize how tired you you are. Mm. Wow. That sounds like a hectic few months you have. It has been good and productive, and I'm happy to still be doing it all, especially in the world today. Doing anything is good after, you know, after 2020. David, can you paint a picture of what life was like for you at the time when you first heard the Beatles? Well, it's interesting you say that because, first of all, there's a huge, no one knows who I am, but if you do, there's often a misconception because 
if you watch the CNN 60 show, I don't know if you ever saw that series, but that's yeah. the Tom Hanks series. I am the dominant, most seen person in the 60s Beatles British Invasion show. And as a result, there's people who think I remember Ed Sullivan. And as old as I may be, I'm not quite old enough to have experienced Beatlemania then. I am the generation that grew up like my memories. I, I vaguely remember older brothers. And I remember my parents had like sergeant pepper and i think like beetle 65 in our stereo that looked like a piece of furniture but i and i remember an older brother of a friend of mine who ended up being the cousin of winona Ryder. because when i went to interview winona Ryder, she knew my name from so it's but i remember david klein's big brother uh jonathan klein i believe had the posters of the Beatles from the album still up in the basement rumpus room. So I, I, I'm, I was aware of the Beatles as a little kid, but didn't really hear them so much so that I would, I fell in love with the Beatles in the solo years and like band on the run was maybe my Sergeant Pepper. Uh, and when that played out, when I went on the road with Paul and Linda uh, for uh, Rolling Stone, I remember being in the back of a tour bus in Argentina and uh, Paul said to me sort of jokingly the way he does like any requests from the set list. And this was the era when he started playing a lot of Beatles. And I said, yeah, less Beatles, more wings, like more band on the run. And he said, well, you're the only one asking me for that. And I said, <laughs> well, I don't believe so. But cut to 20 years later after I partly married my wife because Linda McCartney ordered me to. And that's a very, so when you talk about impact on your life, I was ordered to marry my new girlfriend by Linda McCartney, changed my life. In fact, if you look at my Twitter account, Wild About Music, or you look at my phone, I don't know if yeah. you can see it. That's my sons with Paul backstage at the Grammys. And there's a crazy story about that we can get to. But wow. literally, the Beatles changed my life very very literally. But the truth <laughs> is, I was, yeah, I am the generation that fell in love with the Beatles in the solo years. So uh, I don't have a lot of in real time Beatles memories because I was born in the, you know, early 60s. I don't, so I don't, I didn't experience any of that. You know, I was, uh, the, Beatles, the Beatles broke up before I heard the, listened to the Beatles. Uh, mm -hmm. And in fact, years ago, I don't know if you're enough of a, I know you're a Beatles lover, but when we did, when Paul came to uh, the year we did the Grammy tribute to the Beatles, which uh, I was nominated and lost an Emmy for as a writer, uh, but I'm very, I'm still happy about the show. And there's a lot of great stories out of that one. Uh, but when that, uh, uh, that year, Paul sort of, we asked him to close the Grammys with like rocket out at the end. And he said, okay, I'm going to do 1985 from band on the run. And I was happy because I had always asked more band on the run, Paul. Uh, and then at the last minute he called us, I uh, called Kenner, like our the executive producer. And I, I was sitting with him and he said, I'm thinking I should end with Abbey road med the Abbey road medley. And we were like, okay, that's fine too. It's not 1985, but it's pretty good. And then he goes, I'm thinking I should ask Dave Grohl 
and Joe Walsh. And he goes, and I'd like to ask Bruce Springsteen. Can you ask Bruce Springsteen? So Kenner like called John Landau, who manages Bruce Springsteen. We're sitting in the, this is like days before the Grammy. This is like as we're starting rehearsals. And wow. Ken called John Landau and said, um, Paul McCartney would like to know if Bruce would join him doing Abbey Road medley, the Abbey Road medley at the end of the Grammys. And uh, John Landau said, let me call Bruce. And he called Bruce. And then they called back and uh, said, Bruce just had one question. He goes, when you say Paul McCartney, you mean the one from the Beatles, right? <laughs> yes, that Paul McCartney. And he goes, in that case, Bruce is in. He'll do that. And that, that's literally how, that's how much negotiation there was. Um, that's awesome. I will tell you one other, this is Paul McCartney being a badass. I love this one. Years earlier, we asked Paul to be a part of a, a number that was with uh, Jay-Z and, uh, um, uh, but in any case, Jay-Z, a couple, like a week before the show said, he decided out he didn't want to do the number. <laughs> and uh, so we had to call, I went with Ken and we called London early and called McCartney McCartney's office and said, uh, Jay-Z's out and Bruce, I'm sorry. And Paul said, uh, Give me JZ's number. I'll take care of this. And as I understand it, he literally, and I love that he called him JZ, but uh, I think he, I, I believe what he said to JZ was listen, I'm a friggin' Beatle and I'm going to do it, so you can do it too. Right. And, and apparently that worked even with Jay Z, you know, that even. Wow. That, so you, you, you don't want to say no to, to Paul McCartney. Was, now, was that the performance with Paul McCartney, Jay-Z, and Linkin Park? Yes, it was. It was a non- Oh, wow. Uh, yes, that was... Uh, and I, I'll never forget that because right beforehand, Paul, uh, you know, who knew me, remembered me as a journalist and all that, uh, he said, you have anything you think I should say at the end of this performance? Uh, and I said, yeah. Uh, and by the way, he showed up with a... Uh, Jay-Z showed up maybe as a statement. He showed up with a... John Lennon like uh, uh, t-shirt that for that performance. But Paul said, is there anything you think I should say? I say, yeah, I think, and this ironically, it's more relevant now, but I said, why don't you say, uh, I hope we pass the Grammy audition, which is <laughs> he sort of, it was, so it was a, at that point, relatively obscure, uh, let it be reference. But now right. in, the, in the get back era, it was much more, uh, up to date. So uh, I always think that that was a huge thrill for me to hear, you know, any, listen, anything with Ringo or Paul, I only met George once. I never met John. I did a, I did a a big tribute to him years ago and worked with Yoko on that. And, uh, but anything with a Beatle is the biggest thrill of my professional life, because even though I don't remember (laughs) Beatlemania, I lived it in the seventies through, those solo records and by going backwards and becoming a, a scholar of some sort of some low. Wow. So can you tell me how you got started with this amazing life and career and all of these different interactions with Beatles? Um, uh, what happened was uh, at, I was at, I went to um, Cornell university and a professor named William Kennedy who wrote Ironweed, which you might know, uh, it was eventually made into a movie with Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep, but he won the Pulitzer the year I graduated. And he was my creative writing. He was a visiting professor at Cornell and I got very lucky and he took an interest in my writing. And so I graduated with a guy who had won the, was, had just won the Pulitzer prize. 
And that was good enough to get me not a job out of college, but a internship at Esquire magazine uh, right out of Cornell, which was the biggest break I could ever have. So when people ask for advice, I always say, look for a guy who looks like he's about to win the Pulitzer Prize for fiction and hold on <laughs> to your life. Uh, but he, he won the award. He recommended me to Esquire, uh, a guy named David Hershey, an editor there I had interned for already. The, that, the co combination of those two guys got me a, basically an internship, which turned into a job at Esquire, where I started a record column for the first time, because I'm just a music obsessive kid since middle yeah. school. I, I've been writing about music since my middle school paper with that guy, David Klein, whose brother had the Beatles posters. Uh, we had a column called David and David Pick the Hits in my middle school paper. Uh, but in any case, I got to Esquire, started a record column, and then Jan Wenner heard, who runs Rolling Stone and owned, started Rolling Stone, heard there was this guy at Esquire who loved music, who started a record column with, I started with a woman named Lisa Bain, but because Esquire, which I don't know people your age, if it seems like a big deal, but it was a big oh, deal yeah. back in my, back in my day. Uh, but I was able to, we were able to have like Tom Wolfe, John Updike, uh, all sorts of major writers write record reviews in that magazine. So Jan Wenner noticed that and said, hired me away to be at Rolling Stone. And so I, I, it was the luckiest break in the world. I basically got my dream job at Rolling Stone right out of, you know, within two years of college, I went Esquire, Rolling Stone. And then, uh, what happened is I, I was the music editor of Rolling Stone for a number of years and finally realized I was really young still and I wanted to write. So I basically started assigning myself articles in L.A. And at a certain point, Jan said, why don't you just become the West Coast bureau chief of Rolling Stone? And I did. And uh, that's how I fell into television was uh, we did a Rolling Stone year in review TV special where I interviewed like Spielberg and Howard Stern and other people off camera. But the guy who was producing it was a guy named Joel Gallen, who uh, he said, he, he noticed that I made some of these people laugh. And he goes, you should write jokes for the MTV Awards, which he produced, and the MTV Movie Awards. So that's how I started writing for TV. And then uh, a guy named Ken Ehrlich, who ran, you know, ran the Grammys forever, uh, heard about that and invited me to start writing the Grammys with him, which was 21 years ago. So what happened was just as journalism was becoming a much more challenging world, I fell into being a TV writer and then eventually uh, a TV producer. Wow. That's incredible. If you say so, I, I will. If, if you're impressed, I feel I'll, my job is, is done. So where were you at in your career uh, when Band on the Run came out and when you really took a headfirst dive into solo Beatles and also uh, for the actual Beatles? Well, I just came, I was a teenager during the solo years, so I was buying every McCartney, I was buying every record by all of them, but mm -hmm. it was, I think, I didn't really, and I, I just became like a sponge and went back the way my kids have done because of streaming where you can just go back and I had to go to record stores and buy everything or go to libraries right. and listen to everything. 
but and then I fell into the Beatles world. I think the first time was I met Paul and Linda when they were I was right out of I was just like brand new to Rolling Stone and Press to Play came out, which is one of the least beloved, but except by me, I love the record. And Paul and I Linda, too. oh yeah, and I met Paul and Linda. They did an, uh, a kickoff for it in the lobby of Radio City Music Hall, and I met them then. And then, yeah, a couple of years later, I moved out here for Rolling Stone, and uh, um, around the time of Hope, Hope of Deliverance was released a single. Uh, I was sent out on the road first in the American West and then in South America with Paul and Linda. And that's really where um, my life really began to change then because, um, well, and then there's Ringo, which I'll get to in a minute, but basically Paul, Linda McCartney in particular took an interest in me backstage in South America. She took a picture of me, which is, and said, <clears throat> you want to use this for your books? So for years I did. She, I have the Linda portrait of me that was on my books. Wow. But <clears throat> even more significantly, she said, um, do you have a girlfriend? And I just met a girl a few weeks earlier. And I, I realized now, maybe she was going to set me up with someone, maybe a relative. So I may have made a <laughs> terrible mistake. But in any case, I said, yeah, no, I met this girl and I'd gone out a few times with her and she's actually in New York. This is, we came from South America back to, I think, Giant Stadium. And he, she, and she said, I want you to ask her to come to Soundcheck tomorrow. I want to have lunch with her and I want to see what she's like. So wow. that's like my sixth date with my wife or something was, <laughs> and, and by the way, my wife didn't care about music, but still this was a good invite, you know, she, wow. so oh, she yeah. came out and she, we talked about it the other day. Like, you know, she remembers like there, at that point now, Paul McCartney, I think has learned how to populate his sound checks with charitable donators. And he has, there's a crowd, <clears throat> but then it was like, there were like 50 people, including her. And then Linda brought us back to have like a meal in the vegetarian catering area. And at the end of it, uh, Linda said to me, she pulled me aside from them and said a sentence, which I, I think is one of the most amazing sentences I've ever heard. She goes, David, do you think I know about marriage? And I thought, well, yeah, I can tell you have a great marriage with Paul. I had not grown up with it in, in my parents having a great marriage. So I said, yeah, this stands out as a great marriage. She goes, marry that girl right away. And I'd only gone out for a few weeks but we did get engaged within like four months of that. And wow. and she was part of the reason. Uh, sadly, she died just like four years later. I think she got sick right after that tour began to get sick. And, it, you know, it sort of all builds to this story where, you know, after she passed, uh, right around that time, I had a talk show on Bravo called Musicians about music, Mary. McCartney was our staff photographer. I was sort of around their world after Linda's passing. But then it all like the moment that is, you know, very big in my life is that um, when uh, Paul came to play the Grammys, my wife happened to be coming to the show with my two, our two sons. And, um, and Paul, and, and as, as pop, you know, even backstage at the Grammys, there's no one more popular 
people trying to get a picture with Paul. It's not like he's trying to get pictures with people, but as my wife walked by, this is a picture you can sort of see. It's that's my two young sons, our two young sons. Paul stopped her and said, I need a picture with those boys. So my wife was like stunned, took the picture. And for years uh, I had two theories about, because right after that, the next, the, the next day we did the Grammys tribute to the Beatles. We were so busy. It was so chaotic. I never asked Paul, why did you stop my boys? Because I had two theories. One, the Jonas Brothers were on the show that year. And maybe he thought my kids were the Jonas Brothers. Or, <laughs> or it was the spirit of Linda, you know, making him recognize that these were two kids who might not exist if it wasn't for Paul and Linda being nice to me. Uh, and then cut to four years later, we're doing a Beatles... Um, uh, we're doing a Grammy 60th anniversary special and I am sent to Chicago to interview Paul about the Grammys and Paul being the busy guy that he is, he says, okay, I'll give you 15 minutes on the side of the stage before I go on. So we're set up with a little crew and I, I do that. And then we're down to like, he's about to go on stage and there's another three minutes. So I said, Paul, while we're standing here, I got to ask you a question. I said, I have two theories about why you did this then. And I showed him the picture and he started to tear up. And he said, David, don't make me cry when I'm going on stage. And I realized that his theory is mine, that it was like divine intervention of Linda, who was just because she made such a difference in my life. So that's how the that's how Paul changed my life. I can tell you how George, in my one meeting with George, it was unbelievable and meaningful. And then the real relationship is Ringo, who I've been working with and knowing for, and he, you know, he's my hero. And for 30 years, including during the pandemic, I didn't go to many homes, but I was with him in a mask working on the book with the all about the all-star band. And then more recently, this Beatles book called Lifted, we, uh, I helped him with that uh, was kind of a dream come true. That's so beautiful that your life is so interwoven with the spirit of Paul and Linda and and George. Can you tell me more about the George interaction? What happened there? Well, the George interaction is one interaction. It was supposed to be more because uh, I'll tell you, the the interaction was at Tom Petty's house. And it was during the Wilburys, like in the years right after the Wilburys got together, they were hanging out constantly. And I moved here in 1991. And the first story I did for Rolling Stone when I moved here was a cover story on Tom. And so Tom and his wife, Jane, his first wife, Jane, they just adopted me. I was brand new to LA. I didn't know anyone. So they invited me, including for Christmas, to spend Christmas with the family. And it was the first Christmas. So that's, I think, Christmas 91. It could have been 92, I guess. Uh, I went over to the house and I thought it would be like hundreds of people. It was like 50 people, including... George Harrison, Jeff Lynn. Uh, it was just a very, very small affair. It was also a gift exchange. And in that gift exchange, I had gotten, you know how holiday Christmas gift exchange, I had pulled Tom as the person I had to get a gift for. And knowing what a Beatles fan he was, because he he used to, I used to go hang out with him. And he, I guess George had given him the all the outtakes that now are been on a million reissues and 
online and everything. But it used to be something that like only the Beatles had. But George had given them to Tom because he was such a Beatles fanatic. So like 91 and 92, I am always over at the Petty's house. And Tom was always pulling me into a room and playing me all this Beatles outtakes. And I remember him saying something like, David, they were never not great. The minute Ringo starts drumming with them, they're the greatest band in history and they stay the greatest band in history. So and, true. Uh, but in any case, oh, so I go over, I do remember the absolute truth is I walked in and I noticed a pretty woman, which I was a single guy and you just notice a pretty woman. And then I saw a guy come up and put his arms around the pretty woman like they were a couple. And I said, okay, well, stop looking at the pretty woman. And then I realized the guy putting the arms around the pretty woman was George Harrison. And the pretty woman was Olivia Harrison. Wow. That was as I walked in. So then I sit down for this gift exchange. And because I know Tom loves the Beatles, what I've gotten him for the gift, it was like a $50 limit or 25. It wasn't like a big fancy thing. It was like a, a very down to earth homey thing that Jane and Tom Petty had. I'd bought a Life magazine of the Beatles and had it framed for Tom. So I sit down on the couch, George Harrison sits next to me and Tom sits next to him and they open the gift gift exchange. And as Tom opens the Life magazine, George in the only long conversation, (laughs) this was the first thing he ever said to me. When When Tom opened it up, he goes, oh yeah, the fabs, I remember them. (laughs) <laughs> it's like I said, I feel like I'm in Hard Day's Night. Now, the sad part for me is that uh, that was a perfect moment and perfect night. But I do remember around that time when he got ill, uh, he was coming back to do interviews again. And he had called Ringo and said, I don't even know who to talk to anymore in the music journalism thing. Who should I talk to? And Ringo was talk to David Wilde. I talk, he's good. You know, I talk to him all the time because I've done like, there's like nine Rolling Stone interviews with Ringo I've done over the years before, way before the books we met when he did the first all-star band tour. I did the piece called Stars Reborn. And we've been basically talking to each other on and off ever since. And, uh, but he told George, talk to David Wilde. And so at one point I was booked to fly to England and interview George, and that was around the time he got sick. And uh, so I never did that big interview, uh, but I'm so glad I had that one <laughs> real moment with George that I'll never forget. Uh, oh, that's so beautiful. It was, uh, but yeah, and then, yeah, all that being said, it's really Ringo is the one who has just been a major part of my life. Um, even uh, my favorite story that I tell every two minutes, my son hates hearing this story because I've told it 8 million times. But uh, at, when my kids were like three and five, I would think, uh, I got a call. Ringo was playing with the All-Star Band. This is like probably the fifth band or whatever year it was. Uh, it was actually the band with Roger Hodgson, I think Ian Hunter, whatever year that was. He was playing the Universal Amphitheater, which is gone now. But he said, bring your family, bring your kids. And I think it was my kid's first like real concert. Uh, they were really little, but I, I said, you don't say no to Ringo. So right, yeah. right before the show, my wife and I are sitting with the kids and we're, we have like, I think a pacifier for the small one and 
someone, a guard, a, like a security guard comes up and says, uh, Mr. Starr would like to see you all now. So we were ushered back to the dressing room and uh, the crazy, okay, the crazy part of this story is that to try to make sure my kids knew who the Beatles were, the weekend before I took them to a screening, there's like a weekend, like a Beatles breakfast with the Beatles type screening locally of Yellow Submarine, thinking kids will like that, not thinking it's actually a scary psychedelic drug movie, frankly. So yeah. <laughs> it, it scared the living hell out of my little one. And so to calm him down when we got home, I showed him the Ruddles, which I had on like a, you know, a disc of, I think. And they, they liked that. So when we walked into Ringo's dressing room, he looked at my little one uh, and said, oh my God, son, you're so young. You don't even know who I am. And he, having a big mouth like his father, he goes, yeah, I know who you are. Uh, you were a ruddle, right? <laughs> and he loved that. He goes, uh, unfortunately, son, I wasn't that lucky. And uh, so, which was a crazy story. But the most amazing part was like five years later, Ringo was having one of his birthday parties, which he has often outside of the Capitol, you know, studios in Hollywood here. And I think whoever I was supposed to bring or my wife couldn't go at the last minute. So I brought that my son, Alec, who was my, you know, my younger son, he went mm -hmm. with me. And I'll never forget, we walked into, because after the event, you know, where they celebrate his birthday uh, and, you know, spread peace and love, uh, right. he, he, he has, there's a little reception for his friends in the Capitol Studios. So we walk into Capitol Studios and Ringo sees my son, Alec, and he goes, come with me right now. And he grabs him by the hand and he takes him over to Eric Idle and says, tell him what you said when you met me. And I remember <laughs> that moment, the weirdness of my life was, because it's not me, it was my son. I thought, if I, as a little kid, had a beetle bring me over to a member of Monty Python, right. who I do remember Monty Python, unlike the Beatles, my head would have exploded. And the thing is, yeah. that kid thought that was kind of a normal thing to happen. And only wow. years later did he go, Wow, that was pretty, pretty weird. Pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. So you and Ringo have a good relationship, it sounds like. We, yeah, we, you know, uh, yeah, it's like uh, often when he has a new record, he'll have me over and he'll put it online. Like an in, I'll interview him about the new record. I've written the bios. I've written some liner notes for like his greatest hits. We've continued. We did, you know, uh, Yes. I, you know, so we've, we've maintained, a, yeah. And then when the book happened, it was literally the first book was uh, in the first weeks of the pandemic. And I, you know, I'm over, there's all these pictures you can find that I've tweeted me in a mask, you know, not wanting to uh, do any damage to a beetle. Right, uh, right. Uh, even I'll, I'll tell you one of the great moments during the, not that there's that many great pandemic moments, but the first Grammys a year, not this year's, but the one last year, mm -hmm. which I don't know if you saw the Grammys, but oh yeah, uh, the first last year's Grammys, we did it in a secret location. Not it was, you know, we didn't have an audience. The only audience was the other artist. And mm -hmm. the way we did it was we were basically, we did the performances inside the convention center, which was next to Staples Center, which is now crypto.com, but that's another story. Uh, but we didn't, it was top secret and we were doing the awards on the roof of the parking lot 
of the convention center. Oh, and wow. Where, it was only like 50 people. It was like Beyonce and Billie Eilish and Trevor Noah, our brilliant host who I love. Yeah. But the week before the show, Ben Winston, who's the producer of James Corden and a million other things who sort of took over the Grammys uh, that year, he came to me and said, we don't have anyone to present like record of the year. We need someone legendary because that was the, there were only started vaccinations like a week earlier. And that show was, I was very proud of the job, the whole team and Ben, his vision. I thought we pulled off a very good show in the middle of a pandemic, mm-hmm. but the result was <clears throat> because there were no vaccinations yet, we didn't have anybody over 40 on the show. So we were lacking in a legend. So he goes, right. who can you get? And I said, I had would been working on the first book. You know, this is the second book, The Lifted, which is the recent one. But before that, we did this Ringo Rocks book about the All-Stars. And so I said, Ben, do you want me to ask Ringo? He goes, yeah. But he was like, we were just getting to know each other well then. And he was like, he was like, Slightly like, yeah, you can get a Beatle. Sure, you know. <laughs> but uh, so I wrote Ringo a letter in the middle of the night, like a an email, which was like a Jerry Maguire letter, which you might be too young to know. But it's like a, one of those, like, a lo- and I sort of just said, okay, here's the deal. I really want you to do this. You can leave your house at this hour. You come to the convention center parking lot. You hand a Grammy out. You'll just see me. You'll hand the Grammy out. You'll be back home at this hour. Please, please, please do it. He goes, I'll do it. And he wrote, you know, he was, and and so then he showed up. And the amazing story is it was so, everything was so weird in the world at that point. As he arrived, I get this text to call him or whatever. And he goes, David, they want me to get out of the car. I said, what do you mean? He goes, oh, I thought it was like a vaccination. I thought I would just hand the Grammy out from the car and and like, no, no, you have to come up the stairs, walk 10 feet and there I'll be. And so he came out with uh, Scotty, who is, you know, uh, works with him and Barbara, his wife. And, and he goes, David, I'm not all dressed up because he literally didn't think he had to get out of the car because I'm a little casually dressed. And I said, no, Ringo, you look fantastic, which he always does. But, the greatest thing was, and my wife, who's not at the Grammys for the first time in 20 years, as soon as he goes on camera, she goes, oh, my God, Ringo looks so great. And I showed that to Barbara, and she goes, oh, good, you know, that's good. And then he, when he's on stage, we look at Twitter, and the biggest trend of the Grammys, not this year, but last year, was Ringo is 80? Because people could not believe <laughs> how friggin' cool Ringo and young and youthful and energetic he yeah. looked. So by the time he walked off stage, I was able to go, look at this. The whole world is talking about how good you look. And <laughs> and he went back in his car and he was home. And the greatest thing was, uh, he's just the greatest guy. He's He is everything you want him to be. And wow. so funny. But when he, when he arrived, Ben Winston, the producer, who's this elegant British guy, great guy, walked up to him and said, openly said, we didn't think he really knew you. And Ringo looked at him straight in the eye, not like it was a joke, and goes, he's David Wilde. He knows everyone. And I thought, thank you. It's like when a Beatle makes you act like you're the big deal. That's amazing. In fact, in my – I'll stop stop and answer actual questions. I'm sorry if I'm rambling. But I will say that throughout my career, whenever I deal with a young artist who's an asshole, I always say – 
the Beatles are nice people. So what's your fucking excuse? I said that to you. The Backstreet Boys were once kind of in sync, very nice. The Backstreet Boys, they were just kind of jerky to me once. And I, I said that. I'm like, the Beatles are good people. So just always be a good person. Right. It pays, it pays to be a good person. So Ringo Starr pretty much said that David Wilde is bigger than the Beatles. <laughs> but, but he didn't say bigger than Jesus. Thank God, because that was yeah. <laughs> No, he didn't say that. Uh, I am bigger than Jesus only in that I'm not as slight and handsome. Uh, no, but no one, like Ringo is my favorite of all the people I've ever worked with. He's the coolest, the funniest, you know, he's like, uh, I'll tell you another story, just like what a good guy he is. Like at one point, uh, it's like 20, 15 years ago, there was a writer's strike and uh, the WGA, which I'm a member of. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was having a screening when I think I heard you discuss with Angie, the magical mystery tour DVD re-release or whatever. Yeah. It was that year, and I was in Nashville uh, doing this show, uh, and Fran, you can come in. You can join the podcast. Um, come on in. <laughs> my wife is a very big fan of your podcast. She's not, but she will be. Um, uh, uh, but in any case, so Ringo called me. He goes, David, if I go to Paramount and go to this, am I like crossing your picket line? He goes, I won't go. I'm like, no, no, no. And he actually like offered to have his own screening at the Writers Guild of the movie instead. Like just so cool. So cool. The the coolest of anyone I've ever worked with, I think is. And and by the way, Paul equally, you know, you know, I, not just because he and Linda gave me a wife, but they the Beatles couldn't <laughs> in, in the three of them couldn't have been cooler. And my favorite one of the great things Ringo said to me a few times was because uh, he loved John. There's no like there's no doubt he loved John. He goes, mm -hmm. but a few times, I think the first time I ever asked him about John, he goes, uh, David, you would have loved John and he might have liked you. And <laughs> I, I, if you read Lifted, I sort of threw that back at him. And it's in, it's in that book. You know, it's like he, <laughs> have, he sort of says that to the reader, like uh, John, you would have loved John and he might have liked you, too. Right. <laughs> he's just like that there's a liver puddlian wit uh, oh i'm sorry that's one other story uh, yeah. I, i'm going to take all the time with these stories but yeah keep uh, them coming because my wife just came in it reminded me like about uh friend how many years ago was it we went to liverpool like five Four, right before the pandemic a year or two before the pandemic my son was studying abroad 2018. So in 2018, I had a, uh, one of our sons was studying abroad, our older son, and he said, I want to meet you guys in England. And that was like, great, let's do that. And he goes, Dad, I want you to show me Liverpool. And I had to admit, despite having already been in that Beatles British Invasion show, the truth is I had never been to Liverpool. <laughs> in part because it wasn't like it got rave reviews from, you know, the Beatles, particularly, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't think it was, in any case, I never, it's my own mistake. I didn't go. So I made the call to Elizabeth Freund, who was Ringo's publicist. And, you know, and I said, guys, I don't, I'm just going to go there. Any recommendations? And they said, we'll take care of you. And we made this trip and it was like the definition of, you know, your money is no good in this town. The best way to go to Liverpool is to be on, like to have someone from Apple call and say, 
treat these people well. So like, I, I, it literally was like, we went to the caravan and they were like, what t-shirts and hats would you like? And it's like, wow. uh, how much are they? They said, your money is no good here. And uh, <laughs> our money was no good. And I wish I, sh I should move to Liverpool because then I wouldn't have to pay for anything. <laughs> but I think it was maybe only a one day, like magical mystery tour uh, <laughs> event for us. But it was great awesome. because I fell in love. In fact, I don't know if you, have you been to Liverpool? No, I've never been. Okay, go. It's really great. And I uh, I think it's a much prettier city. And I think that, in fact, that all the Beatles tourism money, and I don't know post-pandemic, this was right before the pandemic, but it was it was wonderful. Uh, and it was great to, to share with our, you know, to actually go to those locations with uh, our son was just fantastic. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, going to Liverpool is definitely on my bucket list. I can't believe I, I haven't gone. I've been to the Abbey Road Crosswalk. Um, but not Liverpool. Have you done the crosswalk? Yeah, I've done that, but I had never done awesome. Liverpool. And it was, uh, you know, it was like I had to, you can do it. You can do, we did like a day. You can get on a train early morning, experience the city and come back. But it is that next time you're in England, it, it'd be in, I realize now it was insane for me not to go there because, you know, what's weird is even though I, as I've said, I wasn't like an original Beatle maniac, I, the truth is I fell in love with every band influence that who were, were Beatles tribute, you know, honoring the Beatles. Like I don't remember the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, but I grew up loving the raspberries who were like, you know, a Beatle, everything I liked was Beatlesque. So right. it was just a matter of working my way back, which used to be a little harder than it is for like my younger son, who's like a DJ. He just, you know, in the streaming world, you just go through and explore and explore and explore and I did that to the point where, but even as a result, it's like, I think like it's sort of changed when you're not originally in that moment, like it's taken me years to sort of be as obsessed with the early Beatles as I am with the later Beatles, just because, you know, the world, the musical universe I came into in the seventies had a more direct tie to like uh, the later Beatles. And like, even with Get Back, like during the making of these books, was when Ringo was sort of being involved in looking at cuts of the Peter Jackson film. And at one point he goes, uh, you're going to love, you're going to love this movie. And I was like, I was excited, uh, but I had seen as in college, like in the eighties, like, and they made it hard to see it for years, but I did see Let It Be once in like a midnight movie print of it. And it, it was such a bummer of a movie. It was like, it, it was so, and but what Ringo had always said to me about the Beatles and what he says eloquently in a million different ways in this lifted book is he goes, whatever, even if there were fights, we fought like brothers. There was always such love. And the thing is, he's Mr. Peace and Love. So, you know, you go, well, you know, I believe him. But I think that's the miracle of Get Back is you really understand that you see it, that the the propaganda was the original film making it look like they hated each other. The mm -hmm. truth is it was always much more comic. It was always like, in fact, the scenes that you've never seen, like uh, when I watched George coming over to help Ringo with Octopus's garden, yeah. I thought, holy crap, these are young, still guys in their late twenties and thirties, you know, but you don't see guys supporting one another and like caring as sensitively like the Beatles. I've been around bands my whole life. You know, usually they're punching each other 
by that time. But I think the truth is beyond the best songs ever written, that peace and love that and, and the complicated emotional connections between them, that's part of the reason they still resonate as powerfully as they do. And uh, like I learned that again doing the Beatles Grammy tribute. I don't know if I don't know if how people can even see it anymore. Uh, it should be out in some way, um, but I don't know that it is because of the rights. But I was asked to write like a two minute film about the origin story of each Beatle. Wow. And it was a complicated thing to write because everything had to be approved by every other member so that I didn't, wasn't just writing like a little Ringo film to be approved by Ringo, but it had to be approved. All four had to be feel comfortable with it. And so when I wrote it, I wrote in part, one of the things that sort of hit me harder than it ever had was the fact that that Lennon McCartney relationship was rooted in both experiencing the loss of a mother at a very early age. Like to me, it's like that hit me very hard. In fact, one of the most amazing moments in my career was we did the, that first Grammys tribute was done literally the next day after the Grammy. So Kenner and I were the only two coming from one show to the other, but I was like, I'd been up for a week doing the Grammys and then you go right into filming this show. And one of the things that I had forgotten and screwed up was the beat, the Apple organization had read my script and approved it, but they did flag one thing, which was I had uh, in that show, Alicia Keys and John Legend introduced let it be. And, but I wrote, I think I had John say this line about how, you know, as the Beatles were beginning to separate and the, the relationship was beginning to sever, Paul thought of his mother and, you know, the mother Mary come to me basically writing about how he was in a way, like in that moment of, of emotional upset, he was looking for the comfort of this mother he had lost. And I wrote some version of that. And Apple said, this is beautiful. And it sounds right, but we don't know that he's ever said that's what it means. So when when I real right as we're filming the show, and as John and Alicia are beginning to do the spoken intro, I'm like, oh my God, I didn't ask. from Liverpool, England. Thank you for listening to part one of David Wilde's Here, There, and Everywhere interview. I'm Jack Lawless. Please check back in next week to listen to part two and hear what happened at the 2014 Grammy salute to the Beatles, whether Dylan is a better writer than the Beatles, and what it was like to work with Ringo on his new book titled Lifted. Be sure to check out David's upcoming podcast with Phil Rosenthal called Naked Lunch. The link to the book and the podcast will both be in the description. If you like this show, please rate it and leave a review. Please subscribe and check back in every week for a brand new episode.